And good afternoon. Welcome to Wednesday's Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen. How are you doing? It's another glorious day right across the UK. A bit overcast earlier on. It's gorgeous now. It's great to be with you. Drop me a message via the Richie Allen Show app or via richieallen.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you today. I've got an extraordinary guest lined up for you, so I have. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, I suppose that one of the things that we'll need to do is change that jingle regarding the app, the app, the app. Do download the app, please, if you can. If you have a smart device, download it via the app store or by Google Play. And do leave a review for the app if you don't mind. Yeah, Giovanni De Stefano will be on the program this evening. He was a regular guest on my evening show when I worked in Spain. An extraordinary man. A great value he was. I enjoyed speaking with him. Now, he was always introduced as the devil's advocate, the man who would defend anyone. And that is his moniker. That is how he became known. That is how he became to be known as the devil's advocate, the man who would defend anyone. Saddam Hussein, Ian Brady, Harold Shipman, Charles Bronson, clients like Saddam Hussein. He once told the BBC that he would have defended Hitler if he had the chance and Satan and others. Now, in February 2011, he was picked up by the Spanish police in Spain. There was a European arrest warrant issued for his arrest. He was extradited to the UK to face charges of fraud, theft and money laundering. He was found guilty of the charges against him and sentenced to 14 years in prison. He went to prison. He was recently released from prison. And we're going to talk to him. He was featured in a three-part Sky documentary earlier on this year. And as I speak to you today, he is being followed... Uh, he has consented to being followed by none other than Jim Sheridan, the famous Irish director. Jim is following Giovanni. Uh, they're making a new documentary about his life that is called The Devil's Advocate. You don't want to miss that. That's coming up around about half past the hour. Huge interest in it, unsurprisingly. OK, let's have a quick look then at what's making the headlines today. The Duke of Sussex... Prince Harry, as he is asked to be called or to be referred as, is in the High Court day two giving testimony, trying to convince a judge that Mirror Group newspapers acquired information about him going back many years, that they acquired the information illegally, hacking and what not. Harry wants to reform the British media. He's also taken a pop at the government too. We'll leave that for the moment. The dam the dam, I've no idea, the Kakova, the Kakovka dam, Kakovka, it is hydroelectric power plant in the city of Nova Kakovka in the Kherson region, was blown up, allegedly, it was blown up, it collapsed and it has caused flooding, of course, in that part of Ukraine, it was built in the Soviet era, what has happened, well, still, and video images show a massive breach in the dam, water surging through it, flooding downstream in the direction of Kherson, the US intelligence, well, there isn't one US intelligence agency, there are several, 
They say that Russia did it and they have proof. Can you trust that? Probably not. I don't know. The Russians said, we didn't do it. It wasn't us. You can't prove anything. Who knows? As usual, when it comes to Ukraine and Russia, I'm pretty stumped. Do you have an opinion, dear listener? Share it with me via the Richie Allen Show app, via richieallen.co.uk. Dear listener, would you believe it? Would you believe it? Would you believe it? There is Greta Thunberg news. Thank God it's been ages. They sweep their mess under the carpet for our generation to clean up and solve. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. How dare you? How dare you indeed. And if there was a National Jingle Maker Award, I would win it every year for that. Of course, I would. Freedom of Dublin. Apparently, Greta Thunberg and Duncan Stewart have been nominated for the Honorary Freedom of Dublin City by Lord Mayor Caroline Conroy. It's the first time the city has used the award to acknowledge the role of environmental activists. Speaking today, Ms Conroy praised the passion of both nominees for raising awareness of the huge issue. That is climate change. We'll leave that there. Kay Burley of Sky News said the Health Secretary Steve Barkley on this morning. He came on to talk about a new obesity jab. Not so new. They've been banging on about obesity jabs and the like, right, for, for a long time. We'll come to that in a moment before we hear about the jabs for overweight people, which is a concerning enough, because soon they'll have a jab for everything, won't they? We'll talk about that in a minute. Before we hear about that, Burley, as in Kay Burley, had the chance to question him, Steve Barkley, the Health Secretary, on the Johns Hopkins research that says lockdown saved the lives of, at best, 1,700 people. A very negligible impact on death and on cases, and lockdown destroyed the nation's health and the mental well-being of children. She also had the chance to question him about the Government Disinformation Unit, a unit that was set up to try and discredit people who are asking questions about lockdown and about vaccines. Let's go to Kay Burley. Did Kay Burley wipe the floor with Steve Barkley? Did she echoes like, as they say in these parts? OK, talk to me about this COVID disinformation unit that I've been reading about in the paper this morning. Can you confirm that there was a disinformation unit? Good question. During covid uh, well, I think there was a unit looking at, for example, some of the, the messages at the time. You may recall, I think you covered on the programme, where people were saying things like having bleach would cure a, a patient the of, of, of COVID. So, yeah, when he mentioned bleach, right, Kay Burley should have wiped, as I've already said, wiped the floor with him. She should have tap danced on his carcass after annihilating him. Because the real story here is not about going after people who said that bleach can cure COVID. The real story is is that preeminent professors like Karl Hennigan, Sinetra Gupta and many, many, many more were targeted by this government disinformation unit. If Kay Burley had any ovaries, and of course she doesn't, she would have challenged him on that point. Why was your disinformation unit trying to destroy the careers of very credible scientists just because they took a different 
point of view on lockdowns and on vaccines, but Kay is as useless as tits on a bull. So he's looking at some of the messages that were out there at the time, making sure we got the right public health messages to the public. I think people are recognising that often through social media, people can get messages that are not helpful from a health perspective. And so I think that was the context in which the unit in the common office was working. To what extent, though, shall we be concerned that the government is monitoring the activity of individuals. It's not North Korea. Not North Korea, right? Kay's getting there, is she? Getting there. You know, to what extent was the government monitoring what people were saying? It's not North Korea. Again, Burley knows damn well who the government was monitoring. She knows this. She knows it wasn't just some idiot who's sitting on, I don't know, sitting in his mother's bedroom with a laptop, right? Who's who's talking about bleach and whatnot. To his credible scientists that were being targeted by this disinformation unit. Credible scientists, what does he say, Barclay? What does he say? No, no, and, and I mean, the Common Office will clarify exactly the, the scope of it, but my understanding was its focus was on those messages which were uh, seen to be sort of conflicting uh, with public health uh, and ensuring that uh, the right messages could be going out. He's to waffling here, she should take him apart at the knees. To, to the public, and that was really the, the much more positive uh, approach that it was And taking. what did you do if you didn't like what people were saying? Well, it, they had Facebook and Twitter and Instagram delete their posts, Kay. It's perfectly reasonable that there will be a range of views and and my understanding of the, of the units were... But, but it wasn't perfectly reasonable that there would be a range of views. This is the whole point of the disinformation unit. The point of setting it up was you didn't want a range of views. You didn't want the public to hear from other scientists who said that lockdown was insane and would do far more harm to public health than any, than any good it would do, you see. That was the point of it, not to hear a variety of voices. The point of the disinformation unit was to ensure that you only heard the gormless goon Chris Whitty, England's chief medical officer, his former deputy Jonathan Van Tam and the utterly inept Patrick Valance, the chief scientific advisor. That was the point of the disinformation unit. North Korea, China, times a thousand maybe. Because that was not the territory it was focused on. It was focused on where uh, messages could have a, a particularly harmful uh, impact on, on patients and, and making sure we can get the right messages uh, out to people and, and that's... Uh, I'd have knocked them out to be honest. That's I'd point. have knocked them out and I'm a peaceful man. I preach I preach peace as a resolution, as a means of resolution. I'm not violent. I don't like violence. I would have punched, I would have knocked him out on that sofa. Uh, to hell with it, it's your career. It's worth it. I mean, you'd never, you'd never be out of work, would you, after you knocked him out on live television. You'd never again have to worry about your next penny, would you? I'd, I'd give him a job. I'd give her a job, I mean. My understanding of its key focus. OK, we are out of time, but it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Wonderful. You've just lied to my face, made me look like an idiot on my own breakfast show, but it's nice to talk to you, Oliver. Not Oliver. Um, Steve Barkley on your bike. Oliver Dowden, the current Deputy Prime Minister, he headed up that disinformation unit. Yeah, he looks like butter wouldn't melt in his mouth, but he's a Nazi. And um, Barkley was also on BBC Radio 4, where he was asked about the obesity jab. You've heard about this all day long. GPs in England may well start offering weight loss jabs to some patients to reduce obesity-related illnesses and resultant pressure on hospitals. It's, um, it's how do you pronounce it? It's um, Wegovy, isn't it? W-E-G-O-V-Y, Wegovy, was approved for NHS after 
were, excuse me, approved for use after research suggested users could shed over 10% of their body weight. It blunts appetite, so you feel full and you eat less. It's a game changer, according to the Prime Minister. It's a £40 million pilot scheme to increase access to specialist weight management services. But I've said a thousand times before, these jobs, and they will be, Never ending. They will be rolled off the assembly line. A jab for obesity, a jab for this, a jab for that. And they will be tied into privileges in the future. Trust me, I'm not a doctor. Here's Steve Barkley. What about the jab then? We think this could be hugely significant. We know that obesity has very severe health consequences. If we take uh, type 2 diabetes, 9 in 10 type 2 diabetics are, are overweight. We know the second biggest cause of cancer is obesity after uh, smoking. So uh, the impact uh, of obesity is very significant, around a million admissions uh, to hospital uh, or appointments at hospital uh, as well. So so the impact of obesity is very, very significant uh, on the nation's health. Uh, we also know that many people listening to this programme uh, will have tried to lose weight, will have struggled to do so, or indeed if they have lost weight, will have struggled to keep that weight off. So it's right that we look at a range of innovations. Uh, we've got pilots, for example, in Wolverhampton looking at how we incentivise uh, healthy behaviours. But alongside that, we should be looking at the latest medicines. And what's really exciting about this pilot is ensuring that the NHS is at the front uh, of the queue in terms of that innovation, looking at how we can deliver uh, these drugs uh, through different ways, so using primary care, uh, using GPs, as opposed to the traditional way that uh, weight loss uh, services like this have been done through hospitals. So we're innovating in how we roll out this programme, but we're also innovating in getting new drugs to people to help tackle obesity, uh, particularly where that links to, to other health conditions. Just to be clear, though, we're not talking about thousands or tens of thousands. If, and it, no, it depends on the result of the pilot, if the pilots are successful, you could be talking of, what, 10, 12 million people being eligible to get jabs to help them with their weight loss. Well, we're starting with a pilot, Nick, and from the pilot, we will then determine what the wider scope is. And that will, of course, well, So the Treasury aren't be... having conversations with you about how it would cut the bill for the NHS? Uh, the Treasury is having conversations about how it could possibly cut the bill uh, uh, for, for the NHS by introducing such measures. Yeah, watch this. It'll be tied into your universal credit payments. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. In the future, you will be pressured to take these jobs to alleviate the, you know, the, 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 the problems of the NHS, the pressure on the NHS. Take your job. If you don't, in the future, I know it sounds absolutely crazy to some people, you'll be, well, you'll be denied access to things. You might be, you might have your universal credit which is basically your unemployment assistance that might be cut for a while until you come to your senses yeah let's leave that one for a moment les lane hi les richie a couple of weeks ago i had a pop at you about man united i never told you i'm a west ham fan they're playing in the europa conference final this evening and i cannot watch it live as i have to work between 6 p.m until 6 a.m tomorrow wish the boys good luck happy amers les hope they'll be forever blowing bubbles this evening we want we want west ham to win they're playing fiorentina of course this evening hi to Gillian. hi to susan hi susan hi to alexandra i had some pretty nasty dental work performed yesterday hence i wasn't with you yesterday i did post about it 
nasty it's still very sore to be honest but it's um, subsiding the pain is subsiding Bacardi helps with that I find thank you Alexandra hi to Gail hi to Scouse Andy who's um, staying up for the programme in China thank you very much hi to Paul who says regarding Greta just when you thought the Irish couldn't embarrass themselves anymore he says for a nation of fighters cynics and piss takers it is very sad to see it slide into the same levels of wokery that has been spreading throughout the rest of the free world. Good evening to Ardell, who did some basic numbers on the obesity jab as it will apparently save the NHS £6.5 billion a year. Now it costs £175 to £250 per person per month. Figures in the article claim there are 12 million obese people in the UK and even at the low end that's £25 billion for the jab, says Ardell. Thank you, Ardell. Appreciate that. Hi to Rob, who says, how do those jabs stop you feeling hungry? Uh, They must either interfere with brain signals to the gut or directly affect the gut. Wait for an explosion of stomach cancer, says Rob. Hi to Will. Hi, Will. How about these obese people start eating well and exercising? I'm infuriated by the lack of accountability by heavy people. I used to be heavy. I used to be fat, says Will, and started running and eating well. And what do you know? I'm now thin. That's Will in North Carolina. Thank you, Will. Hi to Kev who watched an interview with a Romanian MEP talking to the Irish Inquiry about life under communism and he said that cars with license plates license plates ending in an even number could travel certain days and odd numbers could travel other days days and I thought about what you said about house numbers that's right I said this about three years ago I appreciate it and the man from Gary Owen says obesity is the natural outcome for societies that follow the never ending growth economic model thank you anyone for drag queen story time anyone anyone somebody called Ada HD do you get that do you get it do you get it Ada HD or ADHD is somebody who is involved in drag queen story time in the UK. It's a drag queen speaking to Jerry, Jeremy Vine even on Channel 5 today about the necessity for drag queens to read stories to children in primary schools or in nurseries. Ada HD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was the first drag artist in Europe to read stories to kids in a nursery and I've done many of them since. Um I think what one of the big questions people are asking now, people are slowly moving away from the idea of drag being dangerous. Oh, my goodness me. Uh, we're now moving on to the content of the book. Hang on now, Ada. Nobody in history has ever said that drag was dangerous. Most of us have been at a nightclub or at an event and have been, you know, confronted by drag queens. We never said it was dangerous. It's the messing around with primary school aged children. That's what it's about. Uh, I mean, if you want to question, I mean, I as a published children's author, you know, I'm reading books like My First Pride. uh, My First Pride. uh, A book here called The Three Goats United, which which is about uh, a brown, a black and a pink goat who tried to cross the bridge, but they get in front of a bully and they have to deal with that. Uh, and here's a book about two lesbian hedgehogs. One of them's allergic to trees. Two lesbian hedgehogs. One of them is allergic to trees. I don't know about you, dear listener. I'm going straight on Amazon.co.uk in a minute. Where's that book about the lesbian hedgehogs who are allergic to trees? Get in front of a bully and they have to deal with that. Uh, and here's a book about two lesbian hedgehogs. One of them's allergic to trees. Um, oh my- <laughs> 
my goodness me, these kids are going to be scarred for life, aren't they? <laughs> no, no, it's not about that. It's not about scarring the kids for life. The kids will figure out as they get a bit older. As they get into their teens, they'll figure out who they are. And they'll figure out what type of person they are. You know, they'll figure out if they're straight or gay or boy. And they'll just get on with it. And they'll figure out what they feel about minority people. And most of them just won't have any issue with it at all. That's, the, that's, what, that's what people like me are constantly whinging on about. Just leave them alone. We didn't have any of this and it didn't make homophobes out of us, you know. You know, it didn't make homophobes out of us. I had drinks last Sunday afternoon with um, a gay couple. Yes, I did, called um, Alvaro and Andy. And you know what? I wasn't tempted to throw a drink over them. I wasn't tempted to call them names and to insult them because I didn't have drag queen story time in St. Saviour's National School in Waterford. Um, I, I didn't have any of that and I don't have any issue with somebody's sexuality. We don't care, you see. Jeremy Vine interjects. Go on, Jeremy. I can see, I can see reading as performance absolutely send for a a drag queen. I wonder whether the uh, the book takes second place because actually the kids are just fascinated with you. Good question, actually. Uh, no. So what I would say is any performer in Drag Queen Story Hour um, uh, does have to entertain. They have to perform the book because one of the big things I really want to do within Drag Queen Story Hour... Which, just keep these people away from children. Which is something uh, that I created. Um, actually, you know, if a drag queen... I mean... Drag queens are strange. Like, when, when you're talking about transgendered people, drag queens are a whole a different area completely, you know. A transgender person, say, um, who, you know, a decent person who happens to be trans, if they were to be in school, I don't know, reading a story uh, to a child, like, I don't know. I don't know what children read these days. But I wouldn't have a, an issue with it, so long as it's not about the transgender person's identity. I couldn't care less, to be honest. I couldn't give a damn about the sexuality of somebody who reads a story to children in a primary school. I really couldn't. A gay person should not be precluded from that, you know? So long as they're not talking to very young children about sexuality. Because they're too young for this. They should be having fun. You know, they should be doing what we did in school. Setting off the fire alarm and blaming it on somebody else, you know? Putting stones in the lock where the key goes to the maths classroom so you didn't have to do a maths lesson. So it took 25 minutes for them to open the door. That sort of prank, that's the sort of shite kids should be doing. PE, you know, school tours, having the crack, like, you know, comparing their music and all the rest of it and figuring it out for themselves who they are. I'm not going to play any more of that Ada HD because it's a load of bollocks, really. Wiz reckons if you drink a pint of water before a meal, it fills you up better than a jab. That's right. That's an old, that's an old and tried and tested method of eating less is have a good old glass of water beforehand. Hi, Gillian. Hi, Gillian. 18 minutes in, says Gillian. Thank you, Gillian. I appreciate that. Hi to Bernie, who says, why do big beardy fellas dressed in frocks want to hang out with children? You know, most of them, I think, the likes of this Ada DHD, whatever the hell, I, that person's motivation probably isn't sinister. It's just misinformed. It's just misguided in some cases. Now, there are others who, where it is very sinister, where they do want to mess up the minds of kids, leave them alone. It's 22 and a half minutes past the air. By the way, my friends, and they are friends, Andy and um, Arvalo, they said to me as... As gay men in their 40s, married gay men in their 40s, they just shake their heads 
uh, as we do, as the great majority of people do. Sexuality's got nothing to do with it. Most of us just go, what? Leave them alone. Arts and crafts. Papier-mâché. Remember all that shite? Making things from paper-mâché. Yeah. I have no artistic skills. I have no ability. But I tried, you know. Mola. Plasticine. Mola. As we called it in Ireland. All the fun. Screwing around, you know. Just arsing around. That's what children should do. Leave them alone. They'll figure it out. Some will be gay. Most will be straight. Some will identify as trans. And if you leave them alone, the majority of them will grow out of that. He says, speaking as if he's an expert. I'm not really, but I've read enough about this. This is the Richie Allen Show. Thank you for your messages. They are coming in thinking fast via the website and via the recently put together application for the programme. Wayne says, Richie, they are planning on jabbing for everything. As you say, Richie, people will cheer the jabs on as the easy solution to everything rather than bother to try and stay fit and healthy naturally or use natural treatments. Can these jabs ever be trusted after what we've seen? It's my belief that the real purpose of them is other than what people will be told. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Jenny. Stop putting hidden sugar in everything, says Jenny. Good point, Jenny. Ban the use of corn syrup and fructose. Fructose. Healthy eating and exercise is the answer, not risky jobs. When I was young, obesity was actually quite rare, particularly among young people. That is an excellent comment. Yes. Yes. And I was always a skinny, malnourished-looking kid, but so were most of my schoolmates. There were one or two heavier kids. Yeah. And that's because Mammy and Daddy were probably a little bit heavy themselves and, you know, they ate the wrong stuff, but the majority of kids were fit and healthy. Craig, thanks very much for your message. I really appreciate it. So Giovanni De Stefano then, who uh, was a regular guest with me on my radio shows in Spain some years ago, and always good value, by the way. Gotta say that, always good value. Enjoyed his company. Uh, he'll be with me in a few minutes' time for an extended conversation about what happened to him. We'll talk about some of the illustrious, maybe not illustrious, maybe infamous people that he rubbed shoulders with over the years. We'll find out what he's planning on doing now. As I said, there is a three-part Sky documentary which came out earlier this year and it was fascinating. But as I said on my post this week, it did leave us with more questions than answers, right? Uh, Jim Sheridan, who's a great director and apparently a great guy, is currently working on finishing a documentary he is making about the life and times and the incarceration of Giovanni Di Stefano. I'm not sure when that one is due to be released. I suppose we'll ask the man himself in a few minutes' time. If you have comments or questions for Giovanni, as undoubtedly you will, leave them via the app or, as I've said repeatedly, richieallen.co.uk. This is The Richie Allen Show. Nothing much else going on. I was going to play you some audio from Morning Ireland. I'll tell you what I'll do. Just before we get Giovanni on, because we talk all the time about the impact of the lockdown, which didn't really save lives. We know this now, right? It didn't. It, I don't believe it was ever meant to. But here is, I think it's Onya Lawler on Morning Ireland in Dublin, RTE this morning, talking about the, the other costs of lockdown. 
people not being diagnosed, not being scanned and living with the consequences of that. Anya Lawler. Cancer never went away during COVID, but the combined number of diagnosed cancers during 2020 and 2021 was down over 4,300 cases on projections. That's one in 12 expected cancers not detected over the first two years of the pandemic. New preliminary figures from the National Cancer Registry show that in 2021 the number of diagnosed cases was 6% lower than projected, suggesting 1,600 cancers went undiagnosed that year. The figures also reveal the colorectal, female breast and cervical cancer cases, which were notably impacted by COVID-19, had returned to expected case numbers by 2021. But liver, pancreatic and kidney cancers appear to have been more significantly impacted. To tell us more now about what these figures tell us about how COVID impacted the health services and the health of the nation. We'll leave that there. Yeah, she was going to introduce, and I do have the audio, but I don't have time. It's just not good, is it? Uh, Deirdre Murray, Director of National Cancer Registry in Ireland, was going to come on and say, yeah, it's not great. Um, People would be alive if they hadn't locked down, not once, not twice, but thrice, and became a COVID-only health service. That's exactly what happened. Music from the Mavericks. When we return, I will be joined by the famous, the infamous... And the completely original Giovanni Di Stefano, don't go anywhere. The Mavericks on the Richie Allen Show. This is sunny music, because it's sunny outside today, at least for another few days. Good to be with you. Thanks for choosing the programme, as always. Yeah, music from the Mavericks from the In Time album 2013. If you've never heard that, I highly recommend it. It's exactly half five here in the UK. It's the Richie Allen Show broadcasting live from BBG Towers in Seoul for Tell You If I get a bit of time later on, I'll tell you about an evening with the BBG at Fab Cafe in Manchester in early September. I'll tell you a bit later on, if not tomorrow. Now, my guest was a regular on my evening radio shows when I worked in Spain, as I mentioned earlier on. I liked him. He was blessed with a very thick skin. Um, No matter what I threw at him, he came back at me. He had some interesting things to say about most issues. He was very well read. He's known as the devil's advocate, the man who would defend anyone, right? And he represented or claimed to people like Saddam Hussein, Jeremy Bamber, Harold Shipman, Charles Bronson, Ian Brady even, the Moors murderer himself. He was picked up in Spain by Spanish police in 2011 on a European arrest warrant. He was extradited to the UK where he faced charges of fraud, theft and money laundering. Now he's found guilty of all the charges against him. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison. It was claimed during his trial that he had never achieved a legal qualification nor had he passed the bar in any country. That's remarkable really when you think of what he got up to over the previous two two decades. As I mentioned, there is a documentary produced by Sky, but right now he is in production with Jim Sheridan, the excellent Irish producer and director for a forthcoming film or series of films called The Devil's Advocate. I, it's kind of surreal for me to say welcome to this programme, Giovanni De Stefano. Giovanni, welcome. How are you? Hello, good evening and welcome. Now, where were we, Richie? Oh, yeah, we just 10 years have gone by, haven't we? So, <laughs> 10 years have gone by, right? I've got a series of questions I'm going to ask you just to... to just, Fire away, just, my just, friend. Just, you, know, you, you know mine and your style. Whatever that you will ask me, I will answer. You may not like the answer, but it's the answer that you Yeah, I, I, I know you don't fear any questions. You, you, you went into prison in your late 50s. Um, you've come out in your late 60s. I was interested in something that was leaked to one of the tabloids 
about you being in prison. And it was from a prison guard who said that you were amiable, you were gregarious and you were a great help to your fellow inmates. How did you deal with being in jail? How does anybody come to terms with being deprived of their liberty? Tell us about that. Well, first of all, I plead guilty to that charge uh, there that I did help a lot of people. That was that's always been my maxim. That's always been, you know, part of my persona, um, as you like uh, uh, there. And the more people and we did an awful lot of um, uh, stuff as well. You know, we, we had some great success, worked with some great lawyers as well. Who Obviously, I wasn't able to go into court, but we were able to do you know, the bulk of the work, the, the preparatory work and everything, the legal arguments and, and that. How do you cope with prison? How do you cope with freedom is more the question that needs to be asked. Because, you know, I was noticing, for example, I'm at my mother's house for the time being, you know, you know, and, until we go back, you know, to the capital uh, there. But there are you need six doors that are locked to get to my room. That's a hell of a lot more than what there was in prison. Is that right? But but we, we'll talk about the freedom and coming to terms with because the world has moved on a lot in, in a decade. But I'm fascinated by, I mean, what what is the feeling like when you're taken to your prison cell for the first time? There must be some sense of hopelessness, of sorrow, of anguish, of how the hell um, have I got myself into this situation? I don't think I'd fare too well, at least not early on. So tell us about that. It must have been difficult. It wasn't difficult in the slightest because obviously we, we started at Wandsworth Prison and in the third day, uh, the officers at Wandsworth asked me to um, uh, to work in reception, which means you work from six or seven in the morning until nine at night. So you're basically only sleeping in your room there. The rest of the time you're working, you know, that most of the officers leave the work to the orderlies that are there. So most of the warrants were controlled by, you know, it, it's just a different type of environment a human being is capable of accepting and dealing with any type of environment that is thrown at it you know people who've been in concentration camps people who've been in you know that live in the high life people live in the low life it is really really uh, uh you know the human body can acclimatize to anything especially when it has no choice now at first you can be a little bit annoyed and a little bit angry uh, there, and therefore your room, you know, you don't like. Afterwards, it becomes sort of a place where you rest your head. And thirdly, towards the end, it almost becomes an asylum where, you know, you sort of get away from the madding crowd, as Thomas Hardy would, um, you know, would put it there. I was blessed, really, that in the six prisons that I went to, I had the very, very top high security jobs, which required high security clearance and allowed me to be locked up very, very, very minimal. At at high point, um, I spent like four and a half years in the open section. So one didn't you don't really feel. And let me just say one thing about prison that needs to be said. Section 142 of the Criminal Justice Act 2003 sets out the reasons why a person is sent to prison. And one of those is rehabilitation. There is none, zero in British prisons. And I doubt very much there's in other prisons in the rest of the world as well. But in Britain, it is just a human car park of lost souls. People just 
you know, getting up in the morning and going to bed at night, and uh, you know, you know, just working and that. There is no rehabilitation. There is nothing whatsoever. There is no incentive to turn your life because when you're kicking a person out into the UK and you're going to give him £69 and he has to survive on that for a week, what the hell do you think that anyone is going to do? They're going to rob. They have no choice but to go into to theft. Now, the European system works differently. In the European prisons, whatever job you do, you will be paid exactly the same as if you were outside. And what then happens is that one third of that money is kept for you upon release. One third you can spend and one third the prison take for their keep. And so when people are released from prison, say here in Italy, after doing four or five years, they may have 20, 25,000 euros in their pocket, legitimately, um, uh, absolutely legitimately, uh, you know, obtained. So the point is, hang on. So, So the point is. In Italy, they view depriving you of your liberty as punishment enough and you shouldn't be deprived of bettering yourself or creating a better place for yourself when you leave. I'm interested in that. I didn't realise that was well, the case. That, in that is absolutely correct. I mean, you, you, we've had, I think, 10 or 11 different Secretary of State for Justice in as many years. How the hell do you think there's going to be stability at the prison service? I've said it in 2003. I think... Uh, uh, there that the prison officers are underpaid, underrated and undermarked. And it's time that someone did something about this, because if you want to have a rehabilitatory system and rehabilitation, you have to have a system that can cope with that, that can deal with that. The purpose of prison, please, you know, people who are reading that you, you can in due course, just Google the Criminal Justice Act 2003, Section 142. And it tells you that and none of that is happening at the moment. You know, none of that is happening. In, in theory, a person sentenced, for example, to five years imprisonment because there's no rehabilitation should get a discount of at least 25 percent because one of the terms, one of the elements of the reason why you're in prison isn't being effected. And, you know, that's a view that I take. And if I was in the UK, it would be something that I would advocate and promote. But let me tell you, we could pick this up. We could pick this up on a business. It's not. Yeah, it is a business. Yeah, you're right. I I just I, I, I think we could leave that whole subject, which is enormous for another program. I'm not fobbing you off. I'm really interested in that. I've covered the corporations, the Corrections Corporation of America. Uh, we, we've seen it come in to this country. Of course, it's a business. And that's a, a programme worth getting into. When you were in prison, whether it was early or whether it was well into your sentence or later on, were you asked to or did you choose to speak to any of your victims? Well, I don't think, first of all, you have to accept the conviction. I've never accepted the conviction. I was convicted only on the basis that I wasn't a lawyer. Well, you have documents to prove otherwise. I don't. We'll come to that in a minute. I don't. But we'll come to that in a minute. We'll have plenty of time. But you pled guilty to counts of defrauding a couple out of £160,000. Wait a second. Wait a second. There's a reason for that. I was found guilty after like a basically two-month trial. And the agreement that that we had was that if, upon my extradition from Spain, was that... If I was found guilty of anything, I would serve my sentence 
either in Spain or in Italy. Now, the British government reneged on that uh, uh, there. At the end of the trial, when the jury is out and I'm being sentenced, the Crown bring forward two people, you know, that, that claim to be victims, you know, without any paperwork or anything whatsoever. You know, the, the judge, McCreeth, sits, then converts himself into a district judge under the Courts Act, commits me and asks me my plea. Now, had I have not pleaded guilty to those there, I would have been stuck in the UK, or I thought I would, at least another year before there would be a trial where I would have definitely been acquitted because there was that was nonsense. That was absolute rubbish uh, there. So I pleaded guilty purely on a strategic basis that I thought I would go back to Italy, serve my sentence in Italy, and that would be the end of it. Now, luckily, in many ways, the British government reneged, as they always do on their international treaties there. They were scared of me going to Italy there because they thought, what you know, this guy, as soon as he's in Italy, he's going to start talking about what he knows about what the yeah, government has done. Yeah, but before, hang on, hang on, Giovanni, is. hang on, we've got loads of time. Before we come to that, a man went to court and said, he had given you £150,000 to represent him. He'd been in a car accident. He lost a limb. Are you saying these people made it up because, you know... He made it up. That was... That was but you, uh, but you uh, pled guilty to that. that. You, uh, you said what? mea culpa and pled guilty. I wouldn't have pled guilty to it if I didn't do it. Well, no, but it was a strategic plea of guilty because had I not pleaded guilty, I would have been stuck in the UK another year before going back to Italy. It would have been a separate trial. Now, had I have known that the British government, well, of course, I should have known with hindsight, had I have known that they would not uh, 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 honour their agreement uh, there, of course I wouldn't have pleaded guilty. And you know what's happened to that man? Did you know that he was prosecuted for making two false claims on a similar insurance on Barclays Bank? So, you know, that part, the, the press have conveniently forgotten. I don't know work. anything about that. But let me let, let me ask you then about Tricia Walsh-Smith. Was she was she lying? Well, Tricia Walsh-Smith Walsh is, you know, is what she is. I don't even want to give the time of day to that woman um, uh, 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 there. You know, uh, uh, she turned up in the court drunk, you know, uh, gave her husband a hell of a rough time. She said that I cheated her out of $100,000. It then turned out to be seven thousand five hundred. It doesn't matter even if it's one euro, one dollar. If someone's cheating someone of that, but that is absolutely nonsense. And you know, just look at her videos and look at what's happened to her. You know, ever since there. Can I say this to you, Vanny? Before 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 you go on, and you'll get all the time in the world. And I want to deal with this stuff and then move on to. No problem. Let, no, let me let let me just explain where I am. It's very important, right? I not it's not I'm not important. It's important that people understand where I am. I um we spoke quite a lot over a number of years when I was based in Spain. You were great value. You never asked for a penny. I enjoyed your company. When I said on the website the other day that I still like you, I do still like you. Um, but this I have a real problem with this stuff, and I'll tell you why. Right, um, you've served nearly ten years in prison. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not here to beat you up or embarrass you or drag out your convictions. You've served your time. Whatever debt to society you owed, you've paid it. And it's none of my business. And I'm happy to talk to you on the radio. But the point I'm making, and of course, you're famous. When I mentioned you're coming on, people got in touch and said, Richie, he's out of jail and he's going to deny that he ever did anything wrong. There are fraud convictions in the UK back in the 80s, in Ireland back in the 70s. He has previous. He's done it. Why doesn't he fess up? He's done the time, like a man, 
And like I said earlier on, it sounded very much like, um, I don't want to say a model prisoner because I don't think you're a submissive type of guy, but you went in there and you got on with people and you paid your bloody debt. And people are wondering, why can't you just say, yeah, I was a bad boy. I mean, is it that you're worried about civil cases further down the road or what? There's no civil cases. There can be no civil cases because had there been any basis, any foundation to any of the allegations, there would have been civil cases within the time frame, within the statute of limitations. So let me tell you, there's no fraud in 1986. There's no nothing in Ireland that was fabricated by Jerry Walters, the police officer who incidentally committed suicide just before I came out of prison, knowing what the, what we had found out. They had falsified my police national computer entry. That is a matter of fact. The courts have accepted all of that um, uh, uh, there. I have one conviction in 1975 when I was under seven, uh, uh, I was under 21, you know, for, you know, offences and uh, three offences when I was a student to which I got nine months imprisonment suspended. That was spent. Now, what the jury should have heard is that that being the case instead a falsified PNC was made by Jerry Walters there, and then it was reconverted back to the original of only one conviction. And it, this all came to light in 2019 when a prison officer at HMP High Point wanted to send me to open prison. Now, to go to open prison, you need police reports and you need the, your, your, your previous convictions. And so she you know, got that. And she said, look, Giovanni, you've only got one small conviction there. I think you can go to open prison, but you're a foreign national. Let me talk to the governor. I said, but wait a minute. The PNC that was shown in court showed about 20 convictions. She said, well, look, this is the PNC that we've pulled up and the police. She said, let me do another one. So the next day she called me in exactly the same, only one conviction. We did 11 different entries of PNC from different people in the prison, all coming to the same thing. And the courts in 2019 accepted that that was an, you know, an, an error uh, there. And so you can imagine, you know, how I can feel. But let me tell you one thing. If you think that I'm a fraudster, I've paid a very, very, very heavy price for it. If you think I'm a victim, I've paid a very, very, very heavy price for that as well. The common denominator is that for reasons that we still can't quite get to the bottom, but I will, I've paid a very heavy price for something that even if I did do... But I made this point already. I, 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 I made this point already. You've served your debt. I didn't invite you on or, or speak to Michael to bring you on to, to grandstand and score points against you. You know that I didn't do that. I'm a journalist, a real journalist. I don't mind, though. No, I have, no, no, no. Yes. Because I'm a I have a conviction which still... Which still for the moment, still stands in the UK. There is an application yeah. that's gone back in to Lord Justice Holyroyd um, uh, uh, there because, of course, if you look at the indictment very carefully, the indictment challenges and says that I committed the offences, saying I'm a lawyer when I'm not. Well, I'm... <laughs> we know damn well now that not only am I a lawyer, I always was a lawyer since 1988 and since 2002 when the High Court ruled in the Van Hoogstraten case that I am a lawyer, always have been a lawyer, but the judge at the Crown Court refused to admit any of that evidence into trial. And that caused me a great, great uh, uh, problem. And as I've said before, had I have been sitting on the jury at Southwark Crown Court 
I would have uh, uh, returned a verdict of guilty on this man on the evidence that was presented. Now, had I have known the true evidence that there is only one small conviction in 1975, which was spent and that this man really is a lawyer, that's another story. We'll talk about then the we'll, 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 that a little bit more carefully. Yeah, we'll talk about the qualifications in a minute, and that that that's going to be confrontational. But we'll do it in a minute anyway. Um, I suppose on the balance of probabilities, right? I've read as much as I possibly can, and again, I'll say this for the final time: um, you've paid your debt to society, whatever you did do or whatever you didn't do. Um, so I have no contempt for you. I have no dislike for you, none at all. But there'll be people listening to this saying. You know, the least a guy could have is a little bit of contrition for the people that he left down. Now, before we talk about the qualifications, that will be shining through to people. They'll be saying, look, we've all looked into Giovanni. We've seen the documentary. I know you can't believe what you see in the television, but he's been around the world. We know his story. He's let people down and he's taken money and he's not done work for it. And he doesn't seem, even though he's paid his debt, he owes nothing to society. He seems to have no remorse for anybody he might have hurt. I don't understand that. Well, wait a moment. Uh, we, we talk about remorse. You know, I am sorry for the people that, the eight people out of 269 people that complained against me uh, uh, there. I let myself down and let some of my standards down without a doubt. I perhaps could have been more professional. I should not have taken their cases. I was busy in Iraq. I thought that I could just save the world with everybody. That's been one of the major problems that I've had, that I can never say no to anyone. So anyone that I represented, you know, who has the eight people that, you know, who feel that they have suffered a loss or, or, or that, I do feel sorry for. But is it a crime? That's the point. I'm not remorseful if you call it a crime. If you say that I was negligent and that I didn't do perhaps everything to the standards that I would normally do, yes, I'm deeply sorry for that there. there. And, you know, given sort of like a chance again, I would do things, you know, much different. I wouldn't take on some of those cases. There. I didn't need to do that. But that's been a problem that I've had to address within myself over the last 10 years. How to say no when you can't do something or when you haven't got the time to do it instead of saying yes. And for that, I sincerely apologize. Okay, we'll leave that one there. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to keep going over and over the same ground. You said a moment ago that in hindsight, you wouldn't have taken the cases. Now, I took the documentation you gave me. I'm a bit disappointed in you, to be honest. I mean, I know we're not friends, friends, and we've never actually met, but we had a relationship at one time when we spent hours and hours on the radio in Spain. And I, I'm a little bit disappointed in the documentation that you sent me because you sent me a screen grab of a degree from Canterbury University, claiming, right. it, claiming, claiming it as, as, as proof that you have a degree in criminal law. But it didn't take me more than a couple of minutes to find out that Canterbury University has no credit whatsoever. It's 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 a oh. sham. Hang on, Giovanni. I'm going to give you loads of time to talk. It's a yeah. sham university that was set up in the Seychelles in the 1960s, I think, for people to go and buy degrees that they never earned. And that's a fact. And that's why I'm disappointed that you would send that to me and say, here you go, Richie, here's proof that I have a law degree because you don't. Well, it took me two years to do a thesis on that there. So in other words, what you're saying 
uh, is that in those days it was a correspondence course. Today, if you look at it online, it's a fully uh, uh, French university which does online work uh, uh, there. And if you think for one moment that I would send you something knowing that it wasn't to be correct, I've sent you everything I have in absolutely good faith uh, uh, there. I, but it's not a university, Giovanni. It's not a university. Well, it, is it's still, it is still a valid degree, and other people have that degree. There's other barristers that I know that have exactly the well, same I, I'd degree. Love to know, I'd love to know Gordon their names. Both from Canterbury, who did it in a correspondence course in the and 80s. Do, do you know what I don't understand? Do you know what I don't understand? And if I'm coming across as being, you know, a bit patrician, I don't mean to, because as I said, I like you. I know, you're, you know, the people who felt that they were defrauded, who won their case, they'll be upset, you know, at me saying that, but that's just the way it is. You didn't do me any harm and you paid your debt to society. But I know that this Seychelles operation, Canterbury University, is nonsense. But let me just tell you this. This is what pisses me off. I was talking to my better half about you and she was always very fond of listening to you. I mean, you're very well known in Spain for doing radio interviews with people like me. The thing I can't understand about you, you remind me very much of the character in Better Call Saul, the lawyer, Jimmy McGill. I think you're a genius, Giovanni. I mean, I remember listening to you. I think you're a guy who could write a brief or read a brief with the best of them. In fact, if I remember, during your trial, a couple of very learned scholars said, this guy is brilliant. Uh, He would have been a fantastic litigator or barrister. So why? Why the taking the piss, going down the Canterbury University, Mickey Mouse University. Why, with your ability, did you not go to Cambridge or Oxford and get a proper degree? You, you should have been an outstanding barrister. Why not? Well, simply, it was the circumstances at the time. You know, I don't want to put the blame on anyone or anything there, but my personal circumstances at the time meant that I could only enter into correspondence course universities. And that was the one that was offered to me. And I, as I said, it, it, it wasn't just bought for $20 or something like that. It took me two years to do that there. Now, you know, at the end of the day, the experience is what counts uh, there. If you, you put yeah, but me hang on, hang on. Before you say, hang on, Giovanni, hang on. And I am going to shut up. Hang on. Before you say that. But in law, it's not the experience that counts. That This is the point I made a moment ago. Well, today you, you don't even need a degree to be a barrister. Fair you know, enough, you can, right? You don't but, even need one. But, but, but then you did. And you took cases and but worked no, for don't. people. without. So no, no, be. hang on, hang on, hang on. You took cases and took work on behalf of people without a legitimate law degree. And you hadn't passed the bar anywhere. You hadn't. And you did that. And that's a fact. And I just don't get it. The shortcut. This is why I mentioned Frank Abagnale Jr. earlier on, or Jimmy McGill. I mean, to me, you're the ultimate role. He passed his bar exams. Abigail passed his bar exams. He took his bar exams and he passed them. And let me tell you something. In 1988, I passed my Californian bar exams in Sacramento as well. I took them and I passed my American bar, which is why... You've seen the New York State Bar. I'm admitted to the New York State Bar. No, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're not getting away with that either. The New York State... No, hang on. The New York State Bar is a club. It's not the bar. I went looking at this and they came back to me and said, no, you've got to go to 
uh, the New York bar to give you another um, um, email address so I got on to people you didn't pass the bar in New York and you know you didn't and I that's, that's why I'm amazed York, I passed it in California in 1988 in Sacramento I didn't I never said I passed it okay in New York. but you didn't send Sac- me but you didn't send me any you didn't hang on hang on you didn't send me any proof that you passed it in California why not well I you didn't thought we did. But, no, no, you, know, you didn't. We... No, no, you didn't. So I, I'm not going to call you a lawyer, but you sent me proof you passed the bar. I sent you everything I... that we have. And yeah. I've sent it in. Which, which you know, is I've not proof. We have. And do you think that I don't check these things as well there? I knew that you would come up with these questions there, but it is what it is. That is what I did. That is what I passed. Now, you say it's a Mickey Mouse, you know, well, that that's fine. You know, I, I accept what you say there. Yeah. At the end of the day, it took me two years to do that uh, uh, there. It would take three years at London University or Leicester University or or wherever else there. It took me two years. I did the shortcut there two years. And it cost something like £900 at the time. Which was big money at the time. And that's... But that's how it works. That's how Canterbury University works. You pay them an enormous amount of money and regardless of the quality of your work, they'll give you a degree at the end of it. That's how it works. it wasn't quite like that at the time, but if you say it is there, I'm certainly not going to argue your point on there. And I don't want to beat you up. I, I want to talk. Before. I want to talk. I want to talk about some of the people that you were involved in and some of the unbelievable things you did, because there's two sides to you. I was fascinated by reading something about Michael. Uh, uh, Mike, Mike, there's more than two probably. Michael is not here. Your son. He's a lovely bloke by, by the sounds of it. Um, and Michael did a podcast some years ago. I remember listening to it with great interest because I've followed what's happened to you ever since he went to prison. And Mike, Michael even says he has no idea who Giovanni De Stefano is, his father. And that's why I keep coming back to this. It sounds to me you've been a rogue, you've been a bit of a con man, you've cut corners, but, but along the way you've managed to do sterling work for people when you could be bothered your arse to do it. I this I can't get my head around people like you. With your brain, I'd have gone to Trinity College in Dublin, got a law degree, got a first. But you went the, you know, the other way. And I don't want to keep beating you up over that because I do want to spend time on some of the crazy stuff that you got involved with, some of the dictators, you know, Jeremy Bamber. I know there's something you want to say uh, about him. But um, it's it's mental to be talking about this, to be honest with you. But, uh, you, you know, do you, do you not think that sometimes? Do you not think how it could have been if you didn't cut corners and take the piss? I mean, does that not occur to you? You're a smart guy. It must haunt you. You are one of the brightest blokes I've ever interviewed. 269 clients, eight people complain, and, and I get a conviction out of that. We haven't even spoken. I know, about but you had no right to represent them. You had no right because well, you had no. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, there, as I said today, you don't even need a degree to be a That's barrister. Today. Uh, there, you just need a, uh, you know, convert that. But anyway, as I said, it is what it is. You know, you've made, you've put your point forward there. I take your point. Would I do things different? You know, way back 30, 40 years ago. Uh, I don't know. I'm not so sure about uh, uh, that. There, I think probably I would still do this under the same circumstances that I found myself, you know, in the 70s and 80s. I would probably still do, you know, exactly the same thing that, you know, you know, that I have done. That's how I feel. But as I say, I've let myself down on some of the negligent things, but I've not done anything. I don't consider myself to have done anything criminal. I'm not so going to. Um... That's my that's my position. 
uh, there. I'm sorry for anyone who feels offended or anything there. No, don't that worry about is that. My position. We, this is a free speech forum. Nobody will be offended. Look, that's enough of me berating you for, you know, maybe you could have taken a different road. I'm not going to do it. I want to reiterate, I've always enjoyed your company. And I hope in the future when... Um, when 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 it warrants it that we can talk about these issues. I don't mean these issues, but legal issues and 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 uh, and and whatnot. You're listening to. Let me remind you, the devil's advocate, Giovanni De Stefano, who acted for and on behalf some of the most notorious people that you've ever heard of. Um, Giovanni was news box office for many many years. Journalists couldn't wait to get a quote from him. I mentioned some of the people he represented and helped over the years, provided them with legal advice. It's a who's who of the bad. And that's what attracted me to you, I suppose, in Spain, was the brazenness of you and, um, you know, the kind of twinkle in your eye and the tongue-in-cheek stuff. You, you, you said once much to the absolute horror of, I suppose, Jewish people all over the world that given the chance he would have defended Hitler, he said given the chance he would have defended Satan. You met some of these people over the years, didn't you? The likes of Ian Brady and these people. Um, how did a, a, a guy, whatever your failings, whatever my failings, none of us are Ian Brady. How do you stomach people like that? Well, first of all, Ian Brady, when I went to visit him at Ashwood Hospital uh, there, there's an interesting story to that. I said to him, Mr. Brady, uh, when uh, I was little in Urchester, coming back from school, we had to go through a small forest. And I said, Mr. Brady, I said, you know, I was always scared of going through that forest. It was only a couple of minutes walk, I said, to get, you know, to the house there from the school. It's just a small little forest. I said, because I was scared of the bogeyman. And I said, I presume that was you. And his reply was, but I wasn't active in your area. Um, and that sort of caught me off guard. Ian Brady, I represented him in his right to die. I believe that that scumbag should have died, should be allowed to die with his own hands. I couldn't understand why the state was paying £500,000 per year to keep him. He had a nasal gastric uh, feed for years, even though he would eat and slip chocolates and everything, you know, in the meantime there. You know, and in my view... If there was a right to life, there must be a right to death if you want to take it there. And what I wanted to do, which was semi-successful, was for him to be transferred to a Scottish prison, because he's Scottish, of course, where in Scotland they don't do force feeding. They don't do nasal gastric feed. So if you want to kill yourself, if you want to starve yourself to death, you know, the Scots say good luck to you. And that's the only basis that I represented Ian yeah. Brady. We had an enormous exchange of correspondence. He writes in very, very small handwriting. He's an extremely intelligent uh, per, uh, person there and told me some, you know, incredible stories uh, there. But the only basis that I represented him was in his right to die. And had I have had my way, he would have died a lot sooner. Yeah, and but you know well, what? Do you know what? No one would have lost. Everyone is entitled to a defence, regardless of what they've done. Or I should say, everybody's entitled to representation. Most he nearly got off, you know. Did you know that they were very close to being acquitted? Were it not for Michael Smith, 
uh, uh, there who turned states, you know, who gave evidence for the crown, they would have got off Hindley and... Uh, remind and me, remind me, remind me. Didn't Brady and Hindley invite Michael Smith to a, to a house and didn't they murder... Edward Evans in front of Michael That's Smith. That's correct, and that yeah. makes Smith an accessory to murder. Well, he, he ran. Have been well, hang on. He ran to the he ran to the nearest phone box, I think, and rang the cops, didn't he? I don't think that's the, uh, uh, you know, that is the case. He, he, Mr. Smith knew an awful lot. I mean, he's dead now, so rest in peace. No matter what he's yeah. done uh, 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 there. Uh, but he knew an awful lot more about mm, some of those murders than what he made out. And of course, had the uh, police been aware of that, had they have chosen, you know, to indict him, which is what they should have done as well there, there's a very, very good chance that both Brady, Hindley and Smith would have got off. That's interesting, isn't it? Because there's no corroborating evidence. And that In would have been days, that would have been would have been the greatest miscarriage of justice of all time, of course. Well, it would have been. It yeah. would have been for sure, you know. But you know, he 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 wouldn't have been the the first, and he wouldn't have been the last. I mean, Mancini killed a person there in the 40s, and then he went and sold his story to News of the World, so I really did kill him. But, of course, they couldn't try him again uh, there, and that's where the year-and-a-day and a rule came in, you know, in the last 20 years. Tell me this. Um, when I mentioned you were coming on, um, you're listening to Giovanni De Stefano, by the way. And listen, thanks for coming on, number one, and, you know, kind of fronting up. I know... It's the first one you've done, and uh, thanks for you know taking some of the earlier stuff on the chin. I appreciate it. Um, it's coming up for five I'm minutes past the wrong. hour. I'm in the wrong. I mean, I I was negligent. There's no two ways about it. I have been negligent, negligent, negligent. I should have said no to a lot of people there. I said yes. doesn't matter whether I've got the right to represent them or not. I should have said no. I can't do your case because I'm busy in Iraq doing this, that, and the other. For and Saddam Hussein and Kamikal Ali, yeah. If you get to Iraq and you represent Saddam Hussein and you're in the Iraqi High Tribunal, you have to be properly qualified. And that's all I'm going to say on this matter there, because when you're going into a war zone, even the president gets, you know, gets vetted. So we'll say no more about that. No, there. no, we won't. I'm, I'm, I want to. Yeah, I want to ask about Dundee. I think you had the relevant knowledge because you're because because you're a genius. Whether you were qualified or not is another issue. But I'm not going to go back down that road because we've left that to one side for the moment. I was fascinated by before we long before we met on the radio, and when I announced you were coming on, I got quite a number of emails from people in Scotland so you know where I'm going with this one that mad period where you were involved with uh, Dundee um, Football Club tell us about what that was about what was mad about it I was told that there were two million pound in debts and the first day that I enter as a director I find there's 26 million pounds debts just just to the Bank of Scotland and the taxman bursts in on a press conference that we're having wanting PAYE and everything. And I had to, you know, that I was grossly misled, but still we did the best we could. I would never have opted for administration, but the Mar brothers, you know, took a different attitude there. And that is what let Dundee down. I didn't. I delivered. I brought Craig Burley. I brought Ravenelli. And had they have not gone for administration, we would have gone forward with that. We would have gone in that. We already had credit lines with Barclays Bank in London that were that were arranged. But the Mar brothers didn't want. I'd been terribly misled there. But I took that on the chin. 
Oh no, I'm not blaming you for Dundee because I don't know anything about that apart from what I saw in the Sky documentary. So I'm not having a go at you for Dundee at all. But what, what does make me laugh, and again, it's this roguishness that kind of shines out of you. So the club is millions in debt and not only do you bring in Burley and Ravenelli, but as far as I understand, you also try to bring in another massive name player who was based in Italy. That's hardly going to help Giovanni, is it? When a club is in massive debt and you're bringing in guys who are going to be massive wages. I was under the impression wages. that it was two million, ah, two right. million okay. any club can, can live with. I mean, you've got Premier League. This is We're talking about the Scottish Premier League. You know, being in debt, when I, which I was told was two million, is nothing. It's absolutely nothing, you know, uh, there. But if you then find out that it's, you know, 26 million and most of it is repayable almost immediately, that makes a massive difference. So the only way that you can do something uh, uh, there is to increase bums on seat. And whenever I was at Dens Park, there'd always be a thousand, fifteen hundred people more because they were curious about me uh, 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 there. And by bringing Craig Burley and Ravenelli, which were only, I mean, it, if I told you what we were paying them like, you know, per week, it would be laughable now. It's just a small amount, very, very minuscule. You probably get more on if you go sign on the dole, pari pass you um, uh, uh, there. So we did our very, very best. But at the end of the day, after a short period of time, the Mar brothers decided to go into administration. I voted against it and I had my vote recorded in the company minutes uh, 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 there because there was no need to go into administration. You know, we could easily have carried on uh, uh, there. And who knows what the future brings anyway. Yeah, fair enough. Let's leave Dundee alone. Why? I want to talk about Jeremy Bamber in a few minutes. Why? What, what, what do you feel is the real reason for the execution of Saddam Hussein. Why was he executed? Well, Saddam Hussein had to be executed because if you want a regime change, you have to change the regime. Now, you can either jail the regime, but they don't keep quiet, or you can kill them. In Africa, most uh, presidents just get killed and they get overthrown. You've seen all the wars in Africa. We don't bother with elections. Elections, you know, can cost hundreds of millions of pounds. In England, an election costs 250 million pounds. Is it not a lot easier just to have people, you know, members of parliament sign from a computer, chosen by a computer? A jury is chosen by a computer. A computer true, and that's far more important than being a member of Parliament. You're dealing with a man's life. So, you know, as far as Saddam is concerned, uh, there I've known him since 1998. I did not know him just for the trials and everything uh, there. I've known him since 1998 when Milosevic sent me to Iraq to investigate and to explore possibilities of trade because Yugoslavia. And as Iraq was, yeah. had enormous trading uh, capacities. There was no visa requirements, for example, um, uh, there. And so I had originally met Saddam Hussein when there was the inspector, when Richard Butler was inspecting his houses. And I remember at the Al Rashid Hotel saying to, you know, to Dickie Butler, I said, why are you bothering looking under his bed and stuff like that. Do you really think he's going to put chemical weapons or anything in his houses where anyone can go and blow the bloody thing up and it goes up in the air? Said so you people are crazy. And of course, they found nothing. Nothing was ever been found. You know, Saddam Hussein never even had a Game Boy for his kids, let alone, you know, chemical weapons. But we know what happened, you know, thereafter. Did it you... was the will of Bush, Blair and Bill Scorney. 
to take him down and take yeah, him the out. Yeah, the axis, um, the axis of evil, Blair and Bush. Did, were, I mean, you must have, after September the 11th, when George Bush and Colin Powell began to link Saddam Hussein to um, Al-Qaeda, you must have been tearing your hair out because the media didn't challenge that obvious and totally ridiculous lie that any child could find out by going online, could could read about Shia and Sunni. I mean, you must have been going nuts when they were blaming Saddam for it, right? For well, Al-Qaeda. It cost me, ultimately, because I prosecuted Tony Blair in the courts there. I asked the Attorney General you know, for leave to bring a prosecution against him under the Geneva Convention. He refused. I went to court over it and lost uh, uh, there on a technicality, incidentally. I should have been been a little bit more careful on behalf of Tariq, His Excellency Tariq Aziz uh, uh, there. That was the biggest bulls up ever in politics. Everybody knew that they were mendacity, mendacity, mendacity. They were just talking lies, but they can get away with it because the person who holds the key holds the power and they held the key and they are not accountable to anyone. But I have a letter from the attorney general saying that if at any time information comes to light, which can raise a prosecution against Anthony Linton Blair, then and only then will I allow you to bring a prosecution again. So it ain't over yet till the fat do you, lady sings. Do you genuinely have, do, do you hold out, you know, serious? I mean, are you serious? Do you actually think that somebody will eventually get Tony Blair into The Hague? I don't. I think it'll be a cold day in hell before it happens because of his connections. But, but you hold out some hope. Well, all we can do is that you know, if good men do nothing, evil just continues. So, you know, what, what, you know, it, it cost me 10 years of my life because the, you know, the prosecute, my prosecution was a neg was a negligent thing. I should have been done for negligence, you know, maximum. There's no crime involved there, but I was negligent and stupid. And that warranted prison for me being negligent and stupid, stupid to teach me a lesson uh, there. But, you know, someone at some stage in history will prosecute Anthony Linton Blair. Now, it may be after he's dead in the same way that I'm doing with Adolf Hitler. We, you know, we, we are having a trial of Adolf Hitler. Uh, they, you know, you can have a look at that, you know, on the website, the trial of Adolf Hitler.com. You can see that that is a, a, you know, a project that will go forward, you know, later on this year with, you know, defense and prosecution. We pretend that Adolf Hitler is still alive and was never uh, did never committed suicide and he is brought to trial and what would have happened had he been brought to trial and let me just make one thing crystal clear for now my defense of her adolf hitler is not based upon any holocaust denial all we are trying to prove is did Adolf Hitler know anything about the final solution yes or no the holocaust occurred People died. They shouldn't have. And people need to be held accountable for that. But as a matter of. Yeah, but hang on, hang on, hang on. You, you know, it doesn't matter how you frame this Jewish people, many of them, not all of them. I, I, I know quite a few Jewish people and they don't tend to get too excited about stuff like this. But a lot of Jewish people will get annoyed by it. They'll get very annoyed by it. Well, once you prosecute Adolf, I, I mean, 
the Italians prosecuted a chicken, you know, in the 16th century that, you know, went out <laughs> and, and, and was that. So you can actually prosecute anything. You can even prosecute an orange uh, 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 there. But Adolf Hitler needs to be prosecuted. And we need to find out if he knew anything about that. Now, you know, my defense will be based upon purely upon the documents that have been made available there. It would make a good it's, TV show. Make a very good TV show, I think. Not not just that well, particular case. It's an HBO case. project, which we had in 2011. But unfortunately, I became unavoidably detained, so I couldn't do it. Now, come here and I tell you, um, again, maybe for another day we can talk about that because all the ground we've gone over, we're not going to revisit that in the future. We're not going to revisit it today. I want to talk... Bamba, I want, let me tell you about Bamba. Let me answer. Let, 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 let me ask. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm going to ask the question, hang on. Because okay. I, I need... You me, I didn't answer it. No, no, I need you to keep in mind that most of our listeners while they will be familiar with the case of Jeremy Bamber the five counts of murder the whole life tariff they will have forgotten because they watched the dramatisation last year they will have forgotten the intricate details of it so I know what you're going to do with your legal mind you're going to start throwing stuff out there I want you to talk to us as if we um, have completely forgotten about the circumstances of the case. Let me just very quickly say Jeremy Bamber, Jeremy Neville Bamber, is serving life imprisonment with a whole life tariff, meaning he'll never be paroled, okay, um, for the murders of five people, uh, including family members, of course, you know this, don't you? He's adoptive parents, he's adoptive sister, and his sister's six-year-old twin sons. It's been incredibly controversial over the years, and in recent years, Jeremy Bamber's supporters have been game enough to come on this programme and to make the case for Jeremy Bamber. You're listening to Giovanni De Stefano, who's live from Milan, or not far from Milan, anyway, um, this evening, and you are convinced that Jeremy Bamber is innocent. Remember that we're not all familiar with all the intricate details of the case. Talk to us like we're kids. Why are you convinced he's innocent? Well, I represented him for three years, and uh, uh, what we found out, you know, from the crime scene photographs, which courageously were published uh, by the Daily Star, Dominic Lemonsky, who was working there, published a photograph. When I saw a photograph of Sheila Caffell, God rest her soul, with blood coming out of her, uh, uh, her neck, the photo was taken at 10.07 a.m., Anyone knowing about blood coagulation or after death, and I've done many, many post-mortems and many murder cases there. When a person dies, is shot, blood will still come out for a maximum on a good day, depending on temperature, depending on circumstances, depending on how the person, you know, lays for two hours, which means that, that Sheila Caffell was murdered no more than... It can't be before 8 a.m. Impossible to be for more than 8 a.m. Now, Jeremy Bamba was with the police since 3 a.m. He was with the police at all material times. The police have failed to disclose 650,000 pieces of evidence that are pertinent, including a video of the crime scene when they first went in. So he couldn't have killed Sheila Caffell there it's absolutely you know impossible so what i did i thought wait a moment the new criminal justice act 2003 allows the state to have lie detector tests for murderers who are released from prison 
and to check what they're doing. Now it's even been extended to most people. If you come out of prison, you're a drug dealer or you're a fraudster or whatever, you will have to have you undergo a lie detector test once every three months and you better pass it uh, uh, there. So I asked the, what, as it was then, the Home Office, now the Ministry of Justice, can we do a lie detector test on Jeremy Bamba? And they said, yes, and I nearly died because I couldn't believe it. Here we have, you know, the Home Office allowing me to have an expert paid for by the Daily Mirror, incidentally. The Daily Mirror engaged a professional person to do this. And there were to be five questions. Did you murder Neville Bamber? Did you murder Sheila Bender? You know, did you murder each each question was, did you murder that person? Now, on each question, Jeremy Bamber replied, no, 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 including the two children. No and no. And he passed that lie detector test. Yeah, but if you know a little bit about those things, you can pass them. Not five. Well, you know, not I'm, 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 not, I'm not just being an absolute dipstick here, but um, some years ago, I was challenged to try and beat one of those machines. Well, it's quite, quite a few years ago, and maybe the machine wasn't sophisticated, I don't know. But I'd read something beforehand about your hands and your arms and breathing, and I was able to uh, to beat it. But look, they can be beaten. We're talking about five murders. Yeah. Five murders, not one. If the question had been asked, did you kill your entire family? That's one story. You might be able to, but if you're asked, did you kill that specifically? Did you kill that? that? Uh, and the answer came back. So he passed the lie detector test. And I wrote to the Secretary of State and said, look, the man, you know, you authorized me to do this. Now he's passed it. And of course, on the front page of the, even the mirror, they were astounded. They could not believe because the, everybody expected him to fail. And, and, I, and I suppose in a strange way, Perhaps even I did. You know, I thought, well, you know, you know, because it's five months. But I understand what's happened there. I understand what's happened there. Well, I've got to ask you this. Why, if the police know that Jeremy Bamber didn't murder Sheila uh, Caffell, this, this is where some listeners will say, you know, you're really stretching the bounds of credibility here or credulity. Why the hell would the police not want well, to catch the person you, who did it? It's very simple. Go on. Assuming that you were living in the area there, would you like a person that's been convicted of five murders or do you want someone that we don't know who it is who's still out there? You'd be scared shitless you would do there. So the state prefer to put someone behind bars and that keeps the community at peace. They say, thank God for that. You know, we've caught the killer, but the killer, Richie, is still out there if he's still alive. And there. If, he, if he is, and it's terrifying. I, but, but didn't Jeremy... I mean, the, the, the dramatisation, which I think was done by ITV, um, you may have seen it, even though you were I did otherwise see it. I detained. Yeah. yeah, I thought oh, you might have seen it. Um, he did have motivation. Even you would acknowledge that. He did no, have some no, motivation. No, 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 no. Stop, stop, stop. You're going to say now he would inherit White House Farm. Now, yeah. not many people know this, but people who represented him like me. Did you know that White House Farm was rented? How the hell could he inherit something rented? Did he know that? Did he know it was rented? Of course rented? he knew that. Everybody knew that uh, there. Neville was a magistrate. 
He rented White House Farm. There was absolutely no mo and, and I did some of the civil cases because some of the family tried to sue uh, uh, him. Now, you asked me if he didn't do it, who did do it? Well, I'm yeah. not a police officer. I'm not a prosecutor. So I don't know. All I know is that Neville Bamba had a very strange life. He was a member of the security services during the war. And five of his colleagues in different parts of the world over a period of 20 years were murdered, some of them in similar circumstances to Neville Bamba. In other words, with two or three other people. One was murdered in a car with two other people. Another one was murdered in France. I mean, and again, I thank Dominic Lemonsky and Justin Penrose from The Mirror and that who had the courage to publish the photograph and publish exactly the story as to why Bamba, Jeremy, why Neville Bamba was a target. But he was not a target from Jer The problem with Jeremy was that he was a little bit of a womanizer and therefore he pissed off his girlfriend and she gave evidence against him. And did you know it was a 10 to 2 majority verdict? It wasn't unanimous. It was 10 to 2. So two so jurors believed his story. Itself. That's interesting in itself, isn't it? But just, just the idea that somebody would go in there, murder all... You see, if it was a ritualistic murder by a maniac, why... The person it would wasn't have. Mania. This was a, this was. A, I know you're interrupting a, me. Hang on now. Hang on. Hang on. Council. Council will refrain from interrupting. <laughs> the point I'm making is, um, somebody placed <laughs> somebody placed the gun in Sheila's hand. Now, some, you know, somebody who just likes to murder people is not likely, maybe, or it could be argued, might not be so likely to try and um, make it look like somebody else did it. They would just commit the murders, maybe, and then leave. You know. That's the thing I keep coming back to. Somebody put the shotgun in the hands of um, Sheila. Correct me if I'm wrong, but somebody that did. That is absolutely correct. Someone, yeah, but someone we did. don't know if it was put there before or after. We see, see, we do know that the police at 5 a.m. saw a shadow in the house going through. Now, that could be Sheila herself. It could be uh, that Jeremy is fascinated with the sound. Ah, there's a most important thing I forgot. The pathologist, Venesis, I've spoken to him. I've spoken to him. Professor Venesis, I asked him a question. Professor Venesis, out of all the postmortems that you have done, why have you not in the five postmortems given the time of death of the five people? And he said, I don't know. So the only time ever we have a post-mortem, we don't know the time of death, but we now we can find the time of death by the crime scene photo of Sheila Caffell. It couldn't have been before 8 a.m. So that, But Professor Venesis did everything correctly, but didn't put a timeline on when these people die. You ask the question, why? Hell, I don't know, but Jeremy Bamber is serving time for a murder, a murders that he did not. And let me tell you something 30, else too. 38 prison. years, 38 years he's been in prison. I know. Let me tell you something about prison. Nearly. Prison is a fantastic Geiger counter, Richie, for people who try and con you, lie, people who try and give bullshit about their offences and their fantastic Geiger counter. There's an eight cents. Jeremy Bamber has been attacked only once in all those years, and it had nothing to do with... Remember, he's supposed to have killed two children aged eight. He's always been on normal location, and people know that he is innocent. 
Otherwise, he would have been done a long time ago. Or uh, he's in, or he's incredibly charismatic, and he has managed to no. convince. Hey, listen, it, it's it's a hypothesis. I'm not saying I believe that, but that's what maybe your opponents would argue. They would say this guy is a calculating, smooth, cool, good-looking, very persuasive guy, and maybe he could talk his way out of um. I don't know. He could talk his way out of an ambush. Maybe, who knows? I found. No, let me tell you. In prison, you don't find you don't talk. There's no talk in prison. There's no talking. It's just action. You know, you have to be. I mean, I, I, I've never felt fear in prison because obviously I'm much in demand uh, 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 there. So people who want to cause me harm need me. So therefore, you know that. But for Bamba, uh, you know, he has served in the high security. I begged him. I begged him not to appeal his sentence of 25 years. I begged him not to do that because I knew what would happen. He went against me. He appealed it and got a full life term. And that's why I went off record. Otherwise, I would have still been acting for him, even from prison. And, you know, before we move away from him, because look how, look at how quick the time is going. And there are other things I want to talk about in the 25 minutes we have left. And then at the end of this programme, you're going to hear a song from the man himself, Giovanni Di Stefano, for, because for many years he's been playing music and writing music. So we'll do that at the very end. But there's so much I want to get into, right? Before we do that, so... Before we leave Bamber, he, he, if he didn't do it, it's horrifying. Horrifying because he's never going to see the light of day, is he? Well, there is there is a currently a CCRC, Criminal Cases Review Commission, a fifth application that's gone in. I don't know. The problem is, is that the Court of Appeal is intellectually dishonest. And that I say so openly, and I'm and I've made that accusation to the Lord Chief Justice Ian Burnett. I've made it to a number of the judges. Today we had a case in the Court of Appeal in Court Court Eight with Lord Justice Warby, my friend David Martin Sperry went and did an application uh, there. The guy should have got at least a day off his sentence, which would have made him eligible for deportation after spending 485 days on remand, which is completely unacceptable. The judge having caught COVID, the prosecutor caught COVID, the defence lawyer caught COVID. The only one who didn't catch COVID was, you know, you know, the guy um, uh, there. And he paid a terrible price, you know, waiting for justice, you know, to occur there. But they are, you know, the Court of Appeal, you know, are now gatekeepers. The whole purpose of the Court of Appeal in 1907 in the Act was to do justice now they don't do justice. And I, they just yeah. keep and protect their brothers. I mean, that's your opinion. I can't argue with that because I know nothing about the Court of Appeal, but I'm just going to make the point that uh, they're not here to defend themselves. The people who work at the Court of Appeal, they, I'm sure they would take umbrage as that. But ju- just on that, I suppose... Yeah, I just said it and I No, no, I know, it. I know, I know. No, hang on, hang on. It's intellectually dishonest. When, if, if it was to be found that he was innocent and if malfeasance was to be proved malfeasance on behalf of the authorities back in 1985 I suppose before we move on and talk about something else he'd be liable for millions in compensation wouldn't he? No there's a cap on that that even that has been screwed over you're supposed to have automatic compensation if you are unlawfully detained not anymore and whatever compensation that you get they now take away the board and lodgings. That you, is that right? You know, that, that is absolutely correct. Hang on a second. Correct. So they give you two million for being wrongfully convicted for 30 years and then they subtract the money they've spent keeping you 
wrongly in prison. The last person Jesus that I did just Christ. before I came to prison was a guy called Stefan Williams, who was wrongly convicted of a murder uh, on video evidence there. He spent eight years in prison and he got 250 grand. I'm going to read some comments and then we'll talk about something else because it's already 29 minutes to seven. That's here in the UK. Uh, it's an hour ahead there where Giovanni is based. Giovanni De Stefano is our guest, the devil's advocate, the legendary, the infamous, the famous advocate for the, the despots of the world, according to your media, by the way, and to your governments. Um, out of prison after serving nearly 10 years and um, it's good to have you back it's good, it's good to be speaking to you Giovanni it really is thank um, you very much it's, 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 uh, it is it, it brings back some good memories Isabel says a friend of David Icke's a woman called Betty Shine who's not with us anymore was a very well known spiritualist she wrote in one of her books that the father of the twin boys killed in White House Farm, Colin Caffell, went to her for answers. The story goes that she actually connected to something or someone and told him who the real killer was. Did you hear that, that he went... Because Betty Shine was very famous. Apparently Colin went to Betty Shine and Betty Shine said, no, Jeremy didn't do it, it was somebody else. Did you hear that before? I didn't. Not heard it, but you know we don't want to go into the witchcraft that because it's still applicable today. You're in the wrong place here talking about witchcraft. We like we like a bit of um, clairvoyancy. We like a bit I of spirituality. Know, here. I, I know because I know you've been looking me up. I know you're not stupid. Um, Faisal says there's your answer then as to why the police had to prosecute Bamber even if they knew he was innocent. Possible security service involvement. That's Faisal's uh, comment on Hitler. Jenny says there is lots of circumstantial evidence now that Hitler didn't commit suicide, but that he and Eva Braun escaped to South America. Eyewitnesses said that he died in 1965 and that he was predeceased by Eva. Before you jump in on that, Julie Kanani. Hi, Julie. Absolutely fascinating. Hanging on every word, Richie says. Julie. Ian says, I'd love to have a beer or ten with this guy, Giovanni Di Stefano. Problem is, Ian, you'd end up paying. Uh, I jest, I jest. Steve says, uh, this is absolutely riveting. I've just tuned in. I'll catch it on repeat. Claire says, to be fair, they all like you. See, they love the rogues, Giovanni. I know you're going to say you're not a rogue. I know you're going to say I'm not a rogue, but they love the rogues, right? He, he says, to be fair, Giovanni has a point, says Claire, on why the police would want a conviction. Just look at the historic examples of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six. That's a fair point, isn't right. it? Absolutely correct there. Let me tell you a statistic that is absolutely worrying. They say, not me, it is said that 10% of people in prison are both de jure and de facto, by law and fact, innocent. That's bloody 10,000 people. That's a hell of a lot of people because you've got 100,000 people in prison. So you see, 10% sounds a very, very small amount when you look at it as a percentage. If you own 10% of a company, you got jack shite, nothing. But 10% of the prison population innocent is 10,000 people. That's something to be of serious concern. And one of the things that I want to advocate, especially in the UK um, there, is that the Criminal Cases Review uh, uh, Commission be properly funded because they are not. They are not doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. It is just a show face. And it's high time that something uh, happened about that. It's high time that the criminal justice system was taken seriously and not as a business and rehabilitation brought back into uh, 
in, into the management of prisons. It's amazing what you said earlier on about Italy, because I think that's fair. You know, I think Spain as well. Yeah, I think you're right. You get paid exactly what you would outside. If you're a cleaner, if you're a cook, uh, that and you leave prison with 20, 30,000, if you don't that you don't need to steal. And if you do steal, They'll give you double the sentence because you don't need to steal. You don't need to steal. You, yeah, yeah. I love the idea. I mean, depriving someone of their liberty is serious enough without, you know, squeezing them so that when they go out of prison, they've got nothing. I used to speak um, to John Lonergan uh, quite often. He was the governor of Mount Jai in Dublin for 30 years. One of the most humane and decent and saintly human beings who ever governed a prison. And listening to you, um, was like a little bit like listening to some of the things he said to me about prisons. Now, let me give you a 30 second on where I am with um, lockdowns. Johns Hopkins Medical University, one of the most respected in the world, has reported on 20,000 studies and says that lockdowns were unnecessary, that they possibly saved about 1,700 people. They have killed far more. We have learned that this government here in the UK, um, it operated a disinformation unit a secret one, to go after the many learned men and women from academia, I mean scientists, medicine uh, people, doctors, nurses, what have you, to discredit them when they criticised lockdown policies back in early 2020. Um, I think that there are thousands of people dead now, they didn't get cancer treatment, they didn't get scans and all the rest of it, and I laid the blame squarely at the feet of Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, Chris Whitty and all the rest of them. I've had a brilliant question from Chris. How would Giovanni go about defending Matt Hancock and Sajid Javid and the rest of them after what they've done to this country? Well, I defended, I mean, as I've said before, I'm partly to blame for Boris Johnson because I defended him in his cigar theft case, which the Metropolitan Police desperately wanted to have him uh, 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 for, but I managed to defend when, him. When was that? That must have been a long, long time ago, was it, Johnson? It was, but you see, had it not been for me defending him, he wouldn't have been able to go into Parliament because he would have been convicted. So they, they were after him, boy, big time. I mean, I've got the correspondence and everything there. And, you know, and Alex Boris knows, I mean, his name is Alex, but, you know, he knows very, very well that were it not for my intervention at that time, there we had a number of conversations with him over this at the time uh, 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 there. So I am partly to blame for his sudden and unexpected rise as Prime Minister. Uh, it doesn't uh, matter. Something, I, I know, but something we've spoken about back in the past, back in the glory days of Spain, it doesn't matter It doesn't matter which puppet sits on the, 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 the throne in Downing Street. They're all the same. They're controlled by the same people. Angela is listening to this. Very interesting evidence, interview, she says. I can't, this is Angela Lambert, I can, I can believe that Jeremy Bamber is innocent based on Jeremy's evidence. Well, uh, sorry, Giovanni's evidence. Well, the thing about Sheila and the blood and the coagulating, um, I looked into that and it seems that you're absolutely spot on about that. And that should bring down the whole case, shouldn't it? I took an Conviction. opinion on that. I took an opinion from a professor at the University of Rome, La Sapienza. I didn't just say it me because me saying it as a lawyer is no bloody good. I needed, you know, I needed backup. So I, I paid eighteen hundred uh, uh, pounds for a legal opinion on that photo. And I've got that. But the, will the government do anything about it? No, they won't. Because, as I say, the government and the Court of Appeal both are intellectually dishonest. 
they would rather protect. You know, you really have to drag them screaming to get a result uh, uh, on anything. And that's not what it, you know, what it should be. Uh, no, and uh, you know what? I hate, I hate to do this because I said I left it there and I did leave it there. But if I don't do this, I won't be doing my job and you would think I was a soft touch. All I'd say on that is the Court of Appeal staff would say, that's Rich coming from a gentleman who's just gotten out of jail for fraud. I, I'm saying no more so about it. That's what they would say. But that's what they well, would say. Let me, let me put it this way to you. It would be like saying that a prostitute cannot be raped. I mean, that's the analogy uh, there. It doesn't matter where you come from. I actually have more experience than any of the judges in the Court of Appeal because they've never had their liberty taken. They don't know what no, it's like. No, and I'm not being they petty. Say, I want you to understand that. I'm not being petty. I'm just doing my job. That's what they would say. No, that's fine. They would say that. I, I would very much, you bring, a, you bring a high court judge on and have him have a confrontation with me on, this, on the policy, the policies that they are forced into adopting at the Court of Appeal. I They're put, forced into it by the government. I would put my last tenor on you all day long and twice on Sunday. Because I know the facts. Well, I know and, what's and this is the tragedy. And you're only 67. There's time enough for you to gain a qualification, even though you say you don't need one. But there is time enough for you. One. But there's time enough for you to pass one. the bar. Go and pass the bar and get back into it. Now, listen, before... I, I've got to ask you this... Um, because Jim Sheridan, whom we're very fond of in Ireland because he's made some wonderful films, uh, has the man. He is, he has been working with you even since, you know, even while you were inside and now that you're out. Everybody wants to know about The Devil's Advocate, the film. How's that going, the production of it? And when will it come out? And is he giving you a hard time, Sheridan? Well, I, I don't take a hard time from anybody. Everybody's entitled to a, a vision, a, you know, and an opinion. If you have a card and you put black on the on the on the way you see it and white on the front, and then you turn it around, you have different vision. So I really do not mind what people think of me. I know what I am. I know what my capabilities are. I know that I've been stupid. I've been negligent, and I've certainly not kept up you know some of the standards that i should have done but i know i'm not uh, a criminal and i know a hundred percent that i don't have a previous conviction that has been proved already uh, and there and jim sheridan can make whatever documentary i cooperate with him i i've answered every question even tougher ones than what you've given uh, there and it will be for the public to decide you know what what they think if anything even if it matters what they think, because at the end of the day, they want to know about my clients, you know, and you can have a look at that, the man with the golden glasses.com. You can see some of the clients that, that I have represented. And I say one more time, Richie, that you need to understand. I was in Baghdad on a number of occasions in court for Saddam, for, for you know, I've even attended, an, you know, an execution of Barzan al-Takriti and Awad al-Banda there. You don't get into that kind of war zone unless you're properly qualified. And that's all I'm going to say on that uh, uh, there. Or, or alternatively, unless you're a member of the CIA or something like that pretending to be. Now, we did have members of the CIA who were CNN journalists, and I recognized a couple uh, uh, there. So there are people from the security services that work within different professions, 
uh, including journalism. And you have the last word. I'm not going to come back on that. You've had the last word on that. So I want to leave that there. We've got about three or four minutes left. That's all we have left because I've got to play the song, which I promised you I would. And I want to read some comments. Um, Wayne asks, what does Giovanni think about people getting reduced sentences for pleading guilty? I've always likened it to the torturers in medieval dungeons. Admit your guilt and the pain will stop. Same principle. That's a good question. Maybe well, maybe a lot of innocent sure. people, maybe a lot of innocent people plead guilty because they well, think... I, you, I was one of them on, on, on that. But torture was never used as a punishment. It was only ever used historically to, get to extract information. Yeah. Once the information had been extracted, there's no more pain uh, uh, there. But on reduced sentences... That was brought in in 2003 under the Criminal Justice Act, where you have a reduction of sentence up to 33 and a third percent, depending on when you plead guilty, whether it's at the very first moment, whether it's at when you're at the magistrate's court, whether you're the first day at the Crown Court, or whether you plead guilty when, you know, the, you know matters are put to you, depending on that. And at the end of the day, there should be some sort of incentive. Uh, but what judges normally do, if they're going to give you 30 percent reduction and they don't like you they will just increase the basic sentence by 20 percent. so you've only right, had so 10 you, so you, you can't lose wow you lose on the back end let's just leave it there for today I, I want to ask you finally apart from the production with jim sheridan which i'm looking forward to watching what is in i mean thankfully you're still a relatively young man you are a young man um it must be mad you coming out with the changes in technology and society and you know um, women can have a penis now apparently in 2023 you might you might find that amusing but but what what are you planning to do now after the documentary what would you like to do with the rest of your working life I mean you're, you're at I suppose you're at retirement age but I'm sure you've got plans what are you going to I know you've got the Adolf Hitler kind of a mock-up trial which is interesting but what else are you are you planning we've got royal blackmail we've got Lord Haw Haw uh, which we already started filming before I was unavoidably detained, which is now going to continue. So the, William Joyce was uh, actually a British agent. He was never uh, uh, an agent from Germany and, and that there. So we've got evidence. We've got evidence from his daughter, which sadly passed away. But luckily, we kept all of the the filmings that we did. We've also have the Al Megrahi trial, uh, the Lockerbie bomber. That also is going into uh, that was already plan for production there. Royal Blackmail is the story of Ian um, Strachan. I, I, I did the case of the Royal Blackmail uh, uh, case there. A lot of interesting stuff's going to come out about the royal family on that. There's a, a six-parter there, and you can look at that online, royalblackmail.com. You know, so there's quite a bit of stuff, but I, I need you to understand that unfortunately I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and prostate cancer and skin cancer. Now, skin cancer, I've sort of beaten. Prostate cancer, I've sort of got my PSA down. Parkinson's is not something that you can, you know, necessarily uh, um, defeat. But I'm doing the very best that I can, you know, in a, in a modest uh, w- way, you know, trying to basically do just what I'm able to do. I will not take on anything, having learned my lesson, I will not take on anything that I don't have the capability of finishing properly. That's um, uh, uh, what, you know, what I have in store for the next few years. That's and really... of course, there, you know, the 
Netflix situation where, you know, you know, we do have there is a plan for a number of seasons and 10 episodes per season that I'm having uh, meetings every week and debriefings with the people uh, there on that there, well, good on luck. my life and clients. Good luck with all that. Uh, genuinely, and I, I think you'll believe me when I say genuinely distressed to hear that you're not well and I wish you all the best in dealing with that. Um, I'm not it, dead. No, I know you're not, no, but, but you, that's not the best news to be getting in the world. I'm sure you'll take it on. I know, but, 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 but Richie, there's two and a half million heartbeats in a lifetime up to 70. The only important one is the next one. Is the next one after it. And um, should you wish to discuss Lord Ho-Ho and any of these cases uh, and spar with me, if that'll keep you sharp. I, I don't know if it'll keep you sharp sparring with me, but if you fancy it, we'll pick it up again in the near future. Thanks for coming on today and fronting us. I've always loved talking to you. And I, I said to you when we spoke, you don't uh, uh, underdo anything. You, you know, you, whatever you are to say, nothing offends me. You know, some of the stuff you said with hindsight, you know, I, I should think about that. But, you know, there's no point having an interview if it's all one sided. One of you's then a cabbage and it ain't me and it ain't you. So I'm glad that it's gone as it's gone there. I've answered the questions. People can accept it or not accept it. That's how the position is that, you know, where I stand on that. Giovanni, arrivederci for now. I'm going to play out, uh, not play out because I've got some comments to do, but I'm going to play um, your version of my way to close out. Thanks very much. Godspeed and speak soon. Thank you. Thanks, Giovanni. And so I face the final curtain My friend, I'll say it clear I'll state my case, of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I travelled each on every highway and more much more than this I did it my way regrets I had a few but then again too few to mention I did what I had to do Saw it through with tax exemptions. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Well, yes, there were times. Sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when I was down, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I asked it all and did it. My fill, my share of losing, 
Well, and now, as to subside, I find it all oh so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way. Oh no, oh no, not me. I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he is not to show the world how strong he feels and not the words of one who kneels. Let the record show. Giovanni De Stefano and his version of My Way on Wednesday's Richie Allen Show. It's eight minutes to the top of the hour. Thanks for all the comments that came in during uh, the show. I think mostly in support of much of what Giovanni was saying. Thanks to Andy Brandish, to Julie, to Jason Williamson, who asks me to have him back on again. If he wants to come back on again in the future, of course, he's welcome to come back on. Um, my conversations with him years ago in Spain were fantastic. Don't take that as bragging or somehow boastful. I don't mean it like that. I don't mean that I was in any way good. But we would have a tear up about some of these cases and some of these people. And it would go on for an hour. And it was um, as it used to be. You know, you say something and then you shut up and listen and then say something again. And we don't get any of that anymore. I think Piers Morgan or the people working for Piers Morgan have tried to get him on or are trying to get him on. But um, I don't think Giovanni Di Stefano is stupid, no matter what else he might be. He's certainly not stupid. Morgan would bring him on for 10 minutes and would grandstand and try to embarrass him. If indeed now, if indeed Morgan's people did reach out to him, but that's the information I have. So good to speak to him. Uh, Paul says, Fenbendazole for cancer. Please mention it. I, I, I do, and I mentioned it recently because you're not the first person, Paul to mention Fenbendazole. Uh, Gabriel from Garyon. Gabriel. <laughs> Very interesting character, Giovanni, and uh, really enjoyed the interview. Or, and interview, says Gabriel. Hi to Mel, who says, this is my favourite interview so far. Come on, Mel, will you? I've been conducting interviews on this show alone since 2014. There's, there's been some interesting ones, Mel. But, uh, interesting conversation. Kev says, a prostitute cannot be raped. Best line I've heard. Uh, when Giovanni was criticising the integrity of the courts of appeal, I put it to him that the people working there might say, this is rich coming from a man who has been convicted and served time for fraud. And he said, are you saying that a prostitute cannot be raped? It is a good line. I'll give him that. Uh, Peter says, this is the thing about life. There are always two sides to every coin. Great conversation, says Peter. Thank you, Peter. I told you he was good value before he came on. I told you. I told you he was thick-skinned. I told you you could throw anything at him. Uh, uh, he's it's, it's Very good. It's nice to reconnect with him. And I'm not in any way being disrespectful to his victims who were in touch with me, some of them, uh, before the programme. And um, 
no disrespect whatsoever. He served his time for whatever he did or didn't do and he didn't do it to me. It's as simple as that. And he served his debt. Holly asks, what would Giovanni's take be on the spiritual war we are facing? I, it's not the sort of thing he would get into, Holly, to be honest. Um, and I think that's about it, really. I can't read any more. That is it for me. Dr. Ahmad Malik will be back on the Richie Allen Show tomorrow. When he came on, this uh, surgeon, the orth- orthopaedic surgeon, unbelievable. He was great, great value. A lovely gentleman. And we left so much on the table. So Dr. Ahmad Malik will be back on the programme tomorrow for an extended conversation. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks to Chris Chris the Gardener for your kind words about today's show. Thanks again to Giovanni De Stefano. Do check out the Sky three-part, <coughs> excuse me, documentary about him. And I'm sure like me, you cannot wait for the Jim Sheridan miniseries about Giovanni miniseries documentary uh, to go ahead I'm looking forward to that as well I really am that's it then for Wednesday's programme as always thanks for listening happy Amherst go on West Ham go on West Ham then go on West Ham we hope West Ham win tonight speak tomorrow at 5 until then look after yourselves and one another bye now